Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
Folks, today is Thursday, September 26, 2019. Roland Martin broadcasting live from Lima, Ohio. Coming up on today's show, Donald Trump lashes out at the whistleblower who could very well put his presidency in danger. Looks like somebody is losing it. We'll break it down uh, with our panel. Also on today's show, we continue our discussion about still seeking freedom, 1619 to 2019. Also, bullying is a major issue. Wait until we show you uh, some of those uh, huge stories there as well. And we talk about the whole issue of black economics. Well, that's why I'm here in uh, Lima, Ohio. And so uh, looking forward to having the conversation here. Folks, we've got a jam-packed show. Also, update on the NAACP story out of North Carolina. They have suspended the pastor who has been accused of sexual harassment. I will read the letter that was sent to him by NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered from Ohio. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. It's Uncle Roro, y'all. It's rolling, Martin. If the late football announcer Keith Jackson was alive, he would be saying, whoa, Nelly. That's exactly how folks are reacting in the nation's capital with this whistleblower complaint, a CIA officer who alleges that the Trump administration, they have been hiding phone calls that he makes to, make, he makes to world leaders and also that he tried to get a foreign government uh, to essentially investigate his Democratic rival, Joe Biden. Now, Donald Trump and Republicans continue to assert the lie that Joe Biden and his son are corrupt. The fact of the matter is there was no corruption there whatsoever. That is an absolute lie. Today, the head of director of national intelligence appeared before the House Intelligence Committee, did not want to talk about uh, some of the conversations that he has had with the president of the United States. Republicans tried their best to derail it, including Devin Nunes, who said some of the most ridiculous, insane, nonsensical things in the world. It was Adam Schiff, the chair of that committee, who laid bare exactly what the fundamental issue is and why Democrats are pursuing the truth and an impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump. The first place you went was to the White House. Is, is, am I to understand that from your opening statement? It wasn't to the Department of Justice. The first place you went for a second opinion was to the White House? I did not go for a second opinion. The question was, is the information contained here subject to executive privilege, not whether or not it meant urgent concern? And, and so the first place you went for advice as to whether you should provide the complaint as the statute requires to Congress was the White House. I am not authorized as the director of national intelligence to provide executive privileged information. I think it is prudent as a member of the executive branch to check to ensure that in fact it does not. I'm just Unless asking about the sequencing here. Did you first go to the White House the to determine thing. whether you should provide a complaint to Congress? No, sir. That was not the question. The question was whether or not it has executive privilege, not whether or not I should send it on to Congress. Okay. Is the first party you went to outside of your office to seek advice, a counsel, direction, the White House? I have consulted with the White House counsel, and eventually we also consulted with the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel. And my question is, did you go to the White House first? I went to the Office of Legal Counsel for advice. Yes, sir. That, well, I'm asking which you went to first. Did you go to the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel first, or did you go to the White House first? I went to the Office, my, excuse me, 
My team, my office, went to the Office of Legal Counsel first to, to receive whether or not the matter in the letter and in the complaint might meet the executive privilege. They viewed it and said, we've determined that it appears to be executive privilege. And until executive privilege is determined and cleared, I did not have the authority to be able to send that forward to the committee. I worked with the Office of Legal Counsel for the past several weeks to get resolution on this. It's a very deliberate process. Well, Director, I'm just, I'm still trying to understand the chronology. So you first went to the Office of Legal Counsel and then you went to White House Counsel? We went, excuse me, and then to the, repeat that please, sir. I'm just trying to understand the chronology. You first went to the Office of Legal Counsel and then you went to the White House Counsel? No, 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 sir. No, sir. No, we went okay. to the, we went to the White House first to determine, to ask the okay, question. Okay, that, that's all I want is chronology. So you went to the White House first. So you went to the subject of the complaint for advice first about whether you should provide the complaint to Congress. There were issues within this, a couple of things. One, it did appear that it has executive privilege. If it does have executive privilege, it is the White House that determines that. I cannot determine that as the Director of National Intelligence. But in this case, the, the White House, the President, is the subject of the complaint. He's the subject of the wrongdoing. Were you aware when you went to the White House for advice about whether evidence of wrongdoing by the White House should be provided to the Congress, were you aware that the White House Counsel has taken the unprecedented position that the privilege applies to communications involving the President? Um, when he was president, involving the president, when he wasn't president, involving people who never served in the administration, involving people who never served in the administration, even when they're not even talking to the president. Were you aware that that is the, the unprecedented position of the White House, the White House you went to for advice about whether you should turn over a complaint involving the White House? Mr. Chairman, as I said in my opening statement, I believe that everything here in this matter is totally unprecedented, and that is why my former directors of national intelligence forwarded them to you whether or not it met urgent concern or whether it was serious. This was different. And to me, it just seemed prudent to be able to check and ensure as a member of the executive branch before I sent it forward. All right, folks, let's, let's talk about this with our panel. Joining us right now is Dr. Greg Carr, Chair, uh, Department of Afro-American Studies, Howard University. Joseph Williams, he's an uh, editor, U.S. News and World Report. Eric Sa Erica Savage-Wilson, host of her own podcast. Uh, Joseph, I want to start with you. Um, here's one of the things I think Democrats uh, are making a mistake. And there was a lot of people discussing this on social media. A lot of them got so wrapped up in process as opposed to what actually happened that I think they're, they're missing the point. You have to hammer home what they did. This whole deal of, well, that you go to the White House first, that you go here, that you go over here. Focus on the whistleblower. <laughs> well, I think that's important, and I think they, they finally got around to that. Early on, it seemed like the strategy was to try to unfold the process and certainly in that exchange that you played uh, with the, uh, the the director was to try to establish that this guy underneath it all is a presidential appointee and is a Republican and so of course when he goes to the White House that's like the chicken going to the the the, fo the, the fox layer and to try to figure this out of course he's going to tell them not to release any of these things so I think that's probably what they were trying to get to as far as the process stuff goes it, it was a waste of time, but I think a lot of it was to try to get the public educated mm -hmm. on what exactly should have happened mm -hmm. instead of what exactly did happen. Yeah. Um, Erica, yeah. the, the, the thing here is this here. Donald Trump, we're seeing it, is unhinged. The reality is he knows that he's being targeted. Uh, he knows he is screwed up. Today, he, uh, he had a fundraiser. He called reporters scum, yep. lashed out at the whistleblower. Uh, the New York Times is reporting that he has ordered folks in the White House to track down this whistleblower. And what the hell is wrong with Dean Beckett and the New York Times 
for reporting that, first of all, the whistleblower is a man. Right. Is a CIA, CIA officer. Yep. Is an expert on Ukraine. Well, damn. Right. That's not going to be hard to figure out who the whistleblower is. Right. The, the slow unmasking. And I, I tend to agree with Joseph in what he said. I think that it was important that Chairman Schiff, in his introductory also in that line of questioning, and I'm, it was right out of the gate at 9 o'clock this morning that he actually got him to um, direct acting director McGuire to, in fact, admit that he did go to the Office of Legal Counsel in the White House first. That's important to establish and to continue to repeat over and over again so the American public will have an understanding whether or not people understand federal agencies and um, the Office of the Inspector General and how things are to be reported in, in times and things of that nature, understanding that this person who has charge and command over um, an intelligence agency, in his own due diligence, with his, uh, his own due diligence, took this matter where the complainant in this particular document what is in fact the President of the United States to the White House and included the Department of Justice. So um, I, I do feel like that's important because that's something that we'll continue to have to reference back to over and over again as we um, hopefully head to um, articles of impeachment being filed. Greg, Republicans keep saying that Joe Biden and his son are corrupt. A former Ukraine prosecutor said that Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden didn't violate anything. The reality is all of the reporting, all of these things show that that is an absolute lie. They, the Republicans and Trump want to keep saying corrupt, corrupt, corrupt is based on a lie. What you also have here, uh, this whole issue with, with, with Ukraine, now you got Donald Trump calling the whistleblower a spy. Yeah, the whistleblower is a spy, a United States spy. And that person is charged with reporting uh, conduct as unbecoming, and that's what he did here. And so now you have Donald Trump who has trashed the FBI. Now he's trashing this, uh, trashing this whistleblower and it's, and, and it's showing, again, that this guy does not care about anybody or anyone. He will throw anyone under the bus. He will railroad them. And I guarantee you, don't be surprised, because of what the New York Times did, we're probably going to have this person's name in 24 hours. Yeah. Absolutely. Or not tonight. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, it's clear, as you said, Donald Trump is even more unhinged than he's ever been. Today and yesterday, if he had any family members who cared about him, they would get him off of television at this point. He's, he's, just, Intervention. he's becoming must-see TV again as he dissembles in front of us. Uh, but listening to Devin Nunez today, listening to Kevin McCarthy, they too have become unhinged, and it's clear what the strategy is. Donald Trump is not very bright. He's not a he's failed businessman, all these other things. But one thing that he does seem to have, either incidentally or maybe it's in his DNA, he has a sense of the spectacle. And it seems to me that, you know, and I'm not alone, a lot of people are saying this, that he's trying to pick his opponent. If he can prop Joe Biden up, he thinks he can beat Joe Biden because he knows he's talking to a base yep. that will believe anything. But here's the problem. Biden yep. is already imploding. And here's the problem that Nancy Pelosi faces. She didn't want to go for impeachment, but here's where I think Adam Schiff was going finally with this, an agreement, everything that we've already heard from Eric and we heard from Joseph. Schiff is a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. The thin veneer that stands between this country's complete collapse in terms of respect for the rule of law and the Democrats is to keep reinforcing that we have rules here. Yes. So he's trying to pair. He, today, McGuire, best he could do is try to put himself in the same category as Robert Mueller. In other words, I'm just following yeah. the rules. I'm just following the rules. Yeah. But by continuing to harp on the rules, what the Democratic Party can do if they can play this out, because he's going to be impeached in the House of Representatives, and the Senate is going to reject it. Perhaps if they parlay this right, they can break the back of the party formerly known as the GOP for a mm -hmm. long time. If they can say, we are the party of the rules, and you have become completely unhinged. Yes. I think that's part of the, the strategy. Yeah. Uh, I got to ask you all this here. You talked about how the, uh, the, um, the campaign uh, is changing here. And that is, I want to go to Politico, uh, where a new national poll says Elizabeth Warren uh, sitting on top of the poll. She has been steadily rising. I kept telling people. See, if all y'all national media people will learn to watch this show, y'all might be three to six months ahead of the game versus uh, what's going down. But here's what's real interesting here uh, on this. Uh, CNBC has a story that says that Wall Street Democratic donors warn the party will sit out or back Trump mm -hmm. if you nominate Elizabeth Warren. Well, hell, uh, Erica. <laughs> they can go to hell. Because the reality is, if trust me, 
Elizabeth Warren would not love nothing better mm -hmm. than to say, hey, America, Wall Street Democrats don't want to see me in because they're scared of accountability. That's a manna from heaven for Warren. Oh, yeah, and it, it will probably happen. And so it is kind of like cash does root everything around us, right? Wu told us that a long time ago. The Wu told us that a long time ago. And so I believe uh, with um, what we're seeing, especially with the fallout of the Trump regime, um, that an Elizabeth Warren is really looking prime to be um, really good as far as leading um, and um, continuing to lead in the polls because she has the ear of people. You know, there was just a special talking about student loan debt and, you know, now, you know, the conversation around crim um, criminal reform and the legalization of cam cannabis. We have all these different conversations that are going around, going, um, that we're continuing to participate in here around poverty, around people that are participating in the gig economy having to come out. So people are looking for answers and they want more money in their pockets. So um, for sure, when I saw that um, today, uh, that tweet earlier today, tweet, that article tweeted out earlier today, I think that definitely Elizabeth Warren is somebody that people just need to continue to watch out for because her growth is steady. Joseph, who gives a damn about Wall Street Democratic donors? <laughs> the bottom line is we're in this trouble because of Wall Street, having to constantly bail them out. And I'm telling you right now, Elizabeth Warren or any Democrat with a brain would love to run against Wall Street. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, in that ad, it was like a campaign ad that Wall Street cut for Elizabeth Warren, right? I mean, you couldn't get anything better or more organic. And to have your enemy or some uh, an entity that... I mean, you, you take a poll, I would venture to say that one out of every five people would say that Wall Street is the cause of a lot of the problems that we're having right now. The gig economy, the collapse of housing, the, uh, uh, the college tuition problems. You can all trace a line from those issues back to Wall Street and back to the money makers and the people who finance and the shadowy people behind the scenes who are behind a lot of this economic problems. So I think if you have somebody who is declaring her enemy number one, that is street cred that you cannot buy. I mean, that is like yeah. the best kind of political street cred you can have unless you're a corporate Democrat or unless you're a Republican. I mean, and, and, and keep in mind that if that is the problem, that she is public enemy number one for Wall Street, that means they're going to shove all their chips over to the right. Um, and that could potentially be an issue. But if you've got the kind of populist uh, street cred that Elizabeth Warren has, we were talking about in the green room earlier, you know, she come from Oklahoma, she, you know, teen mom, you know, she got a lot of hardship that people can relate to. Mm. And the fact that Wall Street is pointing to her as the person that needs to be defeated, that's, that's, that's as good as you can get in the political season. Greg, if you have a Democratic donor on Wall Street saying they will either sit this out or back <clears throat> Trump, guess what? You ain't no damn Democrat. You are the party of money. And that's all you care about. And that's in and its, and its selfishness. That's what it is. Wall Street people refuse to accept the reality that they played a role in this and they are the problem. They don't want to accept any responsibility. She created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, fought by Wall Street, got back $12 billion for consumers. How much was the bailout of Wall Street? $12 billion. <laughs> the reality is Wall Street wants to screw Americans. They want to play financial games. They want to be too big to fail. And what they don't want is somebody who knows the system, who can articulate it, and who ain't scared of them. And the reality is Obama played it safe. He didn't put Volcker in charge of the Department of Treasury. If you read, if you read the book that was done, uh, and I'll have a title in a second, hey, who said that Obama uh, confidence men? No, 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 confidence men. Oh yeah, Ron yeah, Suskin's right. yeah. book, yeah. where he said Obama, where he says Obama really chose his B economic team versus his A economic team during the campaign. That was the moment during the during the financial crisis. That was the one moment where Wall Street could have been brought to their knees. And Suskin writes in his book that Obama had a meeting. They said, hey, you guys got a PR problem. They looked around each other and said, a PR problem. And they said, oh, we're good. We're good. They don't, Greg, they don't want Warren pushing through policies that, guess what? Tea Party people will support. Right. Rural voters will support. That's right. Black folks will support. I don't know who the hell would say, no, leave Wall Street alone. We're good, mm -hmm. other than Wall Street.
Well, Wall Street and, the, and that element of the corporate Democrats that have always backed them. Barack Obama, of course, we can kind of dismiss him now. Uh, I'm sure he's kind of quivering from wherever he is, maybe in his heart of hearts, which he never showed the rest of us. He's hoping for some type of thing that he could have done because he had the power. But, you know, let's think about this. I agree with you. We were talking in the green room before this, you know, and, you know, Elizabeth Warren is their biggest nightmare. She has the populist rhetoric of a Teddy Roosevelt when he started the Bull Moose Party. In some ways, she's a class traitor along the lines of Franklin Roosevelt during the New Deal, with the exception of the fact that, like a Will Rogers figure of sorts, she's coming out of the Dust Bowl, as you just heard Joe say, teen mother. You know, she is the equivalent of the poor white people who Donald Trump lied to to get their votes before. And here's the challenge. Unlike Stacey Abrams in Georgia talking to rural voters, unlike Andrew Gillum in Florida talking to rural voters, Elizabeth Warren is white. That Pocahontas stuff ain't gonna stick to her. And if Donald Trump is looking across her at her in the aisle and she's picked the right vice president candidate, a booker or someone like that, who will also energize the non-white groups and the young people, who knows, oh, yeah. or, or Julian Castro or somebody like yeah. that, you're looking at someone who came out of poor whiteness, who can get the women's vote, who came out of Harvard, who knows the banking system better than the bankers, and they have, in the words of the old Motown song, nowhere to run nowhere to hide. So it ain't just the bankers, brother. It's the okay. corporate Democrats as well, because they realize if she gets in there, now everybody's gonna have to make an account. Let's be real clear. It would not be serious to Cory Booker, because he gets significant amounts of money from Wall Street. That's just the reality. Oh, so well, that's not gonna happen. You say this, though. Look, up, you still uh, got... But up, up, until, up until this campaign, it was very important to understand. She's going small donor for sure, trying to model some of Bernie Sanders stuff, who no one will ever replicate in terms of his donor base. But up until this presidential campaign, and this is probably what's scaring them as well, she was also getting money from Wall Street. Yep. So, so, so Elizabeth Warren can put this face on, and she, I believe what she says, but let's be clear, one of the reasons they're terrified of her is as well, is because she's been in those same boardrooms and not always on the wrong, on, right. against them. This is a complicated issue for them. Well, I think that, 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 that makes well, perfect sense. I mean, you have somebody who, has, who knows the internal structure, and let's remember, she created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which the Republicans are now trying yeah, to dismantle. dismantle. Yeah. If you separate even that part of it, you understand who her biggest foes are and who is really concerned about yep. whether or not she's going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. Well, it's going to be quite interesting. I keep telling people, this is now when this whole thing heats up, what takes place uh, over the next three months, and so we'll certainly see what happens. All right, folks, uh, let's talk about the uh, Botham-Jean case uh, where the prosecution, they have rested. One of the things they did today, uh, Erica, is they talked about why Amber Geiger's, uh, why her uniform was so spotless. So mm -hmm. when the first responders were there trying to save the life of Botham Jean, she was over in the corner texting. Uh, they really went after her on that. The defense, of course, said, well, she was letting EMTs do their job. Well, that's not the, really the case there. The prosecution, again, the trial started on Monday. Today is Thursday. They're resting their case. Yeah. We'll now see what the defense looks like. Uh, the bottom line here is that, that they've had some emotional testimony. They are, prosecution has portrayed Amber Geiger as somebody who was indifferent, who should have understood she was in the wrong apartment, and they have been poking holes into the defense's whole case that somehow Jean was so close to her, she had no, uh, no, no reason to shoot him, had no other reason to shoot him. In fact, uh, the defense he keeps even saying where both of Jean's shoes were lying when the EMT came in. Prosecution said uh, that means nothing because they moved his shoes aside right. to try to save his life. It's been really interesting watching how the prosecution has been dismantling their case. Right, and, and day four has definitely been um, a, a productive day. It was really good to see that the crime scene analysts also testified under oath that um, the shell casings, where they were found, that does not necessarily mean that that's where the gun was shot. So I'm hoping that um, with the level of testimony that's being um, given at this trial, um, from uh, you've got um, your crime scene analysts, you have investigators, that, and it, particularly because the family is not going away, like they're continuing to put on pressure, that there would definitely be positive outcomes, at least for this police shooting. Um, one of the things that uh, we have seen uh, in this uh, trial here, um, uh, Joseph, uh, is again how this, uh, how first and foremost, uh, how the judge has been really, really tough. This sister has not been playing around as well. 
Uh, and what we now know is that, based upon the testimony, uh, chemical testing showed there was no blood on Amber Geiger's uniform. Uh, and also latex gloves, according to the Dallas Morning News, latex gloves in her pocket also showed no signs of blood and appeared to be unused. And so uh, they are really laying out that she made no effort at all to try to save uh, the life of Botham Jean until first responders uh, there arrived. And so... Uh, you know, we'll see in terms of how, how, how this lays out. But the bottom line here is that the defense keeps saying it was a tragic mistake. Yeah, but somebody's dead. Well, it's a tragic mistake that she really didn't do a whole lot to correct, you know, given those facts. I mean, the, the glove stayed in her pocket. She wasn't in there trying to save his life. And I think that one of the things that, that this kind of underscores is the fact that it's so easy for cops to make that first option for pulling the revolver and, and, and opening fire. I mean, to me, that was most striking. I mean, if you think that there's an intruder in your in your house, yeah, I guess that's the first option, but there are also other options, i.e. calling for backup, calling for help, and even after she discharged her service weapon into Botham John's chest and made no effort to save him, her first text was, besides calling 911, her first text was to her partner telling him that she had fucked up. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's staggering to, to, to think about the sequence of events here and that there really was no effort on her to save the life of somebody who she just blew away. I mean, to me, I think that speaks more than anything else, but we're still in Dallas. We're still having a white police officer on trial for killing a black man. It could go any way. I mean, even though the, the judge has kind of kept it a tight leash, we really don't know how the jury is going to react until they react. Uh, Greg, what we have here, prosecutors also uh, were very clear. One of the things that they laid out is that and they, they're blasting police saying uh, that, uh, that Amber Geiger received uh, special treatment from cops on that night. It's interesting to have prosecutors do that, uh, but, they, but they make it perfectly clear as a part of their story that she got the benefit of the doubt because she was a cop. They did not approach this as it would any other case. No, I mean, and you make this point, um, consistently rolling. This is the power and the importance of electoral politics. Uh, you have a prosecutor's office that is going after her as well they should. You have a judge that is sitting there, it's gonna, as we just heard Joseph say, keep as tight a rein as possible on this. And we know that you have to have that to even have a shot. Because again, you know, the reporting is that she's going to take the stand. And we all know what that's going to be. They're going to be tears. They're going to be, I, I didn't, that's why, as you said, everything from the texting in the corner when the cops show up to the text messages are going to be important because you can't get in somebody's mind, mens rea. You can't understand what they were thinking. But if once she gets on the stand, she's going to try to push back the tide and lean very heavily on this blue shield and on this image of, I was a cop. I was reacting as a cop. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I'm saying all that to say that that is why it is always important who the prosecutor is, who the judge is. So people who sit on the sidelines and say don't participate in the political process, please watch this trial because they even have a shot at convicting her. You had to have people in the room who would be willing to look beyond all that because that's her only defense at this point is to play on that psychology and that might not be enough in this instance. But I also wonder, I also wonder, I mean, it's kind of, a, kind of a general question. I also kind of wonder if we are getting a serious prosecutor and a serious judge because mm -hmm. of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, mm -hmm. has that brought this to the fore where you do have a police officer being prosecuted for murder for shooting an innocent black man. I mean, I can remember not too long ago, where it's not that difficult for me to imagine, that nothing would have been done, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. So I just kind of wonder if that's part of what the evolution of the Black Lives Matter, and if, there's some, if this is some actual fruit to bear that they can point to about yep. the whole movement to protect uh, black men and black lives in the street. All right, folks, hold tight one second. got to go to a break. We come back. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the maroon. Mm, Y'all might say, what's that? No, not a band, not a color. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, again, uh, this historical uh, note, uh, footnote that deals with, of course, our segment, our 1619 to 2019 segment, Still Seeking Freedom. And so we'll unpack that for you when we come back right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Lima, Ohio. Back in a moment. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. 
All right, folks, you've heard me talk a lot about MarijuanaStock.org because I want to keep you informed of investment opportunities that make sense. And we've all watched the growth of the cannabis industry. A recent report by New Frontier Data estimates the global cannabis market at more than $340 billion. We know that marijuana legalization is sweeping the country state by state. We also know that marijuana has a good cousin, the hemp plant, with a much higher concentration of CBD. That means hemp gives you all the medical benefits of marijuana without getting you high. Until recently, hemp farming was practically legal in the U.S. and heavily regulated by the DEA. However, the 2018 Farm Bill changed all of that, making it legal to grow hemp CBD in the U.S., creating one of the largest commodities worldwide. They need land to grow all the plants, and that's where our good friends at 420 Real Estate come in. Their business model is simple. They buy land that supports hemp CBD grow operations and lease it to licensed, high-paying tenants. That's right, there are hemp CBD landlords. You can get in on the action. Now, what they've done, 420 Real Estate has done is offer this special deal for the folks who watch Roller Martin Unfiltered. Originally, the minimum investment level was 500 bucks. Now, you can invest in this crowdfunding campaign for as little as $200 up to $10,000. Again, this is a $340 billion industry that is still growing. You can participate with as little as 200 bucks. To invest, go to MarijuanaStock.org. That's MarijuanaStock.org. Get in the game and get in the game now. All right, folks. Um, did you know that uh, there were some escapes, escape slaves who were able to get away and flee to Jamaica? Hmm. History you never learned about. Joining us right now uh, from Atlanta is Dr. Samuel Livingston, Director of African American Studies at Morehouse College. Dr. Livingston, how you doing? I'm doing well, Brother Roland. How you doing? Doing great. So tell us about the Maroons. <laughs> well, uh, the first thing I'd like to tell you is that they didn't all escape to, to Jamaica. Some of them stayed right here, and they are a part of the, um, our African ancestors right here in the United States. In fact, um, you know, I was so pleased to to see, to read the 1619 project, um, uh, spearheaded by Sister Hannah Jones, and so at a, just an array of, of of great black minds. But 1619 is not the beginning of our history. Uh, 15, the year 1526 mm -hmm. is the beginning of our history, and it began actually with a group of Africans, 100 Africans who were brought to the United States of America. Uh, late in the summer of 1526 by a Spaniard named Lucas Vasquez de Ayon. And they essentially um, destroyed the settlement uh, called the San Miguel de Guadalupe settlement. And they established the first permanent presence of Africans in the United States of what would become the United States of America. Um, uh, you know, so we, we have the argument that, well, Virginia was the beginning of the United States of America, but you can't argue, really argue that and say that South Carolina or Georgia, where the um, San Miguel settlement took place, wasn't actually a part of the U.S. also. So those technically would have become Maroons, um, Africans who killed and, and killed their enslavers um, and set up their own community, probably with Native Americans who, were, uh, who would go on to live in South Carolina and, that, and, and, South Carolina and Georgia in that region. So not all of them went to Jamaicans. And so as you're unpacking this, I mean, obviously it's, it's providing a different level of understanding and context uh, in, in terms of this history. But I think it also what people need to understand is that uh, you, you didn't have people of African descent who were just so um, uh, feeble. I mean, look, from the moment people of African descent hit this country, yeah. They were trying to seek freedom, which is why we call yeah. this segment Still Seeking Freedom. Freedom was, I mean, that was the piece. That was, that, these, these folks were never, ever just fine with resign to what's happened. It was a constant effort to be free. Exactly. No, I, I can't agree with you more than on, than on that. Um, you, know, you know, one of the things about the 1619 Project that I thought could have been brought out a little bit more it's actually the, um, the Africans in Virginia um, who actually escaped and, and tried to set up their own societies. But there were scores of those societies. It could have been as, as many as between 50 to 100 of those different type of maroon communities from Virginia all the way down into Louisiana and uh, definitely into Florida and other areas as well. Um, 
but no, you're absolutely right. Um, Africans have never settled for enslavement or, you know, with the institution of slavery itself being, you know, that definitely um, was not something that our ancestors were, were happy with or, or satisfied with. Um, Greg Carr, I want to go to you. I mean, th this is the reason, again, the reason why we're doing this segment is because, again, what I did not want to happen, I did not want for us to sit here and just commemorate this moment, uh, have this event or a few events in Virginia uh, or have a publication or whatever, is that is to, is to say, no, use the next year or even beyond to really tell this narrative, to unpack this story, to show just these different elements of who we are and where we came from and how we arrived at this point. Absolutely. You know, and, and Roland, as you said, when you envision this and as you're unfolding it week after week, as the viewership continues to expand and folks tune in, not only are you showing the dimensions of African life in the modern world, including resistance, you're also linking it to our practice to this day. An independent, yeah. black-owned and controlled black news media outlet, which is now yeah. highlighting and showing the scholarship and the daily teaching practice of some of our finest scholars at black institutions. I mean, I've known Sam Livingston, my big brother, we've known each other for decades, and this is a brother who not only is a, is a deep scholar in Maroonage and many other areas, He's teaching young people at the Atlanta University Center every day. So it's great to have the 1619 Project. Great for the New York Times to spend money and Robert Smith to, to pay and John Legend and others and send us all the magazines. And, but there are a lot of places where those magazines arrived at HBCU campuses where they were received by faculty who do this work every day. And so in yes. doing this every week, what you're showing is our best minds are not only writing, not only researching, they are teaching. And our young people now are exposed. And add Sam Livingston to the list of people. You got everybody should look up now and look at what this brother is doing. Hey, well. you know, Sam, I gotta, I, I wanna, I, Sam, I wanna go to you on this because uh, when we talk about, uh, again, I keep saying history and his story, and that's what this really speaks to me—the difference here. I think we have to understand that that we have to go beyond his story and utilize our platforms tell our story. Uh, Greg often talks about it. That's what Ebony did. That's what Jet did. When you read the writings of Lerone Bennett and others, and the issue that I have right now with so-called black media is that we are, in essence, rewriting stories by white folks mm -hmm. and then slapping a black uh, byline on it. And I'm <laughs> like, nah, that ain't it. No, I, man, I, I agree with you. Um, and uh, shout out to big, big up my brother Greg right there. Um, you know, I, I owe a, a lot of what I'm doing to his influence, as well as to uh, Valethea Watkins, Mario Beatty, um, just a number of really good young scholars who are still doing this work. And uh, thank you, Brother Roland, for providing this, this platform. One thing I want to say on that um, is that, you know, we have too many heroes and, and heroines, um, heroes and sheroes who... who whose stories we haven't been telling. And there are so many other aspects of, of those stories that we need to tell. You know, so for every Frederick Douglass that you have, we need to also know the story of somebody like a Moses Dixon, um, who was a contemporary mm. of, of Douglass, um, but a man who started a slave rebellion movement that probably never what never took, took place, but we know that he actually had a big impact on history. Um, the only reason why we don't know this man is because essentially, um, you could say the, the, the scholarly powers that be or whatever uh, don't necessarily really want this want the story out there. But um, there's, there's so many other stories that we really need to tell. And, uh, and that's just here in America, not to mention on the continent of Africa and in other parts of the diaspora. Questions from Erica and Joseph before we end the segment. I, I do have um, a question. So um, thank you, Dr. Livingston. Uh, wanted to find out from you, as you are providing this information to those young folks out, um, my son is a man of Morehouse, so as you are providing that information to these young minds, what is the response to the information, which is essentially new information that they're receiving? What are the what's the feedback that you're getting? Oh, it's, uh, it's over, I would say overwhelmingly uh, positive and students are really inquisitive. What um, I, I see, and I'm, I'm so pleased to, to, to find this out, and I know uh, uh, brother uh, Dr. Card probably does this a lot better than I do, but actually getting students 
into like the research process, if you put out just a little feeler, you know, okay, I'm working on this project and we need somebody with uh, Spanish skills. I literally said this in class today and um, I was kicking myself because I, because I didn't say it earlier, but the brothers just literally jumped to the opportunity. They, they were just very enthusiastic. Um, and, and you see that type of thing every single day um, uh, in terms of uh, the black scholars at HBCUs, um, other locations too, but I got to shout out my folks at, the, at our HBCUs who are doing phenomenal work um, all across this country. So, uh, no, I, I agree, there, there's a response. Um, every now and then you will get a little bit of hesitance. Um, you know, students will ask the, the question which they should ask. Um, well, where's the evidence for this? You say that there's a, there's a, a slave rebellion movement that was planned from 1846 until 1856 and that you had tens of thousands of brothers poised um, to, to set it off in the city of Atlanta um, under this Knights of Liberty movement. Well, where's the evidence for it? So we do the research and we show students exactly where the argument is and where where the evidence evidence is and then we let them um, take it from there and form their own positions and opinions but it's up to us to put those stories out there and to tell those stories in, in the best way that we can and to recruit our students and get them uh, to, to become those storytellers too yeah. well one quick question I, I, one quick question that I had is is it, it, it the, the story of the, of the maroons kind of reminds me of of the paradox, right? I mean, here in D.C. we have the African American Museum of History and Culture, right? One of the most popular Smithsonian museums ever created. I mean, they're waiting lists, they have time tickets. People can't get enough of that, and a lot of people who come visit are white people, and yet we still have so much of this history that's unknown, right? So much of these history of the history when it comes to the surface, we're like, wow, we didn't know that, and that to me speaks to the fact that there really isn't a lot of teaching of this sort of thing in the general public, and by that I mean in school, in public schools. I mean, students are coming to college to you completely ignorant of this sort of history. What I'd like to know is, is there a movement or is there a way to filter down this teaching to grade schools and to high schools so that you don't have kids showing up at, at, at Morehouse or Howard or, or Bethune-Cookman who are completely ignorant of this sort of thing, and you, you do have a wider movement to understand the contributions and the history, the fuller history of African Americans in this hemisphere. Definitely, I, I'm, I'm going to defer to my brother Greg on, uh, on that, Dr. Carr, because he's done a phenomenal job of actually writing curriculum in, in ways that are transforming, that have transformed tens of thousands of students. Um, so, brother Greg. Oh, oh no, brother. Listen, I'm I'm glad to hear this conversation because, in part, you know, when you mentioned in reference to Erica, who's I guess now help me. When you say man of Morehouse, that means that he's there now. Right. That's exactly right. So Sam, you gotta make sure you gotta let <laughs> okay. Okay. No, Definitely. But I get some one of these projects. You no know, question. I mean, right. the, the work certainly the K twelve work, Joe, we, that we've done, you know, in Philadelphia, many other places. But building on the work, as we would say, Roland, of generations. I mean, Ebony Jr., people might forget that Johnson yeah. oh, yeah. Publishing had a whole mm -hmm. series of magazines and it went to the schools. But when they, by the time they get to us, and I'm thinking about it, Sam, because of course we just we spent two weeks in the Nile Valley together. You know, uh, Dave Wall Rice and others, we were there. One of the things yeah. you were talking to us about was getting these young people involved in research and the team. In fact, you were recruiting in, in Egypt. That is work that we've seen also done in elementary school, in middle school, and in high school. Uh, people like Kim Worthy, who teaches for many, taught for many years and teaches in this city, he was DC Teacher of the Year at the Howard University uh, Middle School of, of uh, Science and Mathematics had her students doing genealogy research. So even asking a seven-year-old, go interview everybody in your family and come back and give us a family history report. And then we're going to teach you how to look up the records. By the time she gets to college, she will already have a family history and already be ready to go back past the boat to Africa and tie it all together. So we do have to do that. You know, get our young people involved very young, and it begins with the family. Doc, final yeah. comment. I'm, I'm sorry, brother. Final comment from you. Oh, 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 man. Um, just the last thing I would say is uh, the Maroons, a really important but overlooked part of our history. If you look at one of the most important set of laws that were passed um, in, our, in our history, 1705 um, Omnibus Slave Statute, there's a whole section in there that really just deals with the Maroons. And if you look at what's being done to the African population in the 18th century of Virginia, you see um, 
uh, the, the argument laid out very well in the 1619 Project, that it touches every single other area of black lives um, today. So the final word for me would be um, know the Maroons, know yourselves, and uh, claim and support black Maroon spaces today, uh, black educational spaces, black media spaces. Um, shout out to you, Brother Roland. Really appreciate it. And also all my folks at HBCUs. Support HBCUs. Make a donation. Support HBCUs, HBCUs as soon as you can. All right, Dr. Samuel Livingston, of course, uh, with Director of African American Studies at Morehouse College. We appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. All right, thank you, folks. This is Expungement Week, uh, and we, of course, uh, are talking about this very issue. Joining us right now uh, is uh, Rafi Crockett, Principal Consultant. Actually, I'm sorry, D.C. Organizer for National Expungement Week. Uh, and so, um, Rafi, let's talk about this here because uh, a lot of people are eligible to have records expunged that they don't even know what the, where to go, how to even happen. There are people who don't even realize certain states they even live in, they can now vote. Exactly. Thank you so much for having us on to talk about National Expungement Week. You're talking about Maroons. We're talking about getting free. So let's get the 77 million people who have criminal records in this country. Let's get them free. And when I say criminal records, I'm not talking about convictions. I'm talking about mere arrests. I'm talking about people who were charged and the charges might have been dismissed or they were charged and they were uh, they were found not, not guilty. Nonetheless, those um, records still exist, and they are detrimental to people being able to gain access to housing, to education, to jobs, um, to voting rights. And um, I'm thankful that I live in Washington, D.C., where a conviction does not um, delete your, your voting rights. You are automatically given your voting rights back as soon as you are released from, from prison here in Washington, D.C. But in too many states, that is Inf not the case. Information matters. And so I've got somebody on YouTube right now who says, if you have more than one felony, they can never be expunged. True or false? It depends on the state. Unfortunately, um, Every state is different, and it makes it extremely difficult for people to know their rights, to know what is available to them. Um, so in some states, only misdemeanors. In certain states, there's automatic expungement. Ca uh, California and Illinois right now are pushing for automatic expungement um, related for cannabis-related convictions. We've got Pennsylvania, which is now pushing for automated expungement of additional um, criminal criminal charges. Here in Washington, D.C., uh, my councilman uh, just introduced a bill that would have automated expungement for um, eligible misdemeanors, eligible felonies, um, anything that was a non-conviction, and things that have been decriminalized subsequently. So it's really uh, de determined by what state you live in, unfortunately. Um, and one of the things that we also need to understand when we talk about expungement um, is, yeah, people, political people who are trying to help folks as well. Um, for somebody out there who's watching, who's listening, where do they go? So is, you know, is there a particular website where they can try to get some information? It might be a family member who can help one of their loved ones. And again, for us, it's about where can they get information? So this week is National Expungement Week. It began on September 21st. It runs through September 28th. We have 40 events occurring in 30 cities, from D.C. to L.A., from Boston to Honolulu. If you go to offtherecord.us, that's offtherecord.us, you can identify the events that are happening in cities near you. All right, then. Well, Rafi Crockett, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you very much uh, for your work. Thank you very uh, and much. And what you're doing. And it is critically important. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, I got to go to a quick break, folks. When we come back, I'm going to give you an update on the story at North Carolina where a sister uh, is alleging sexual harassment uh, by a pastor there who was running for state president of North Carolina NAACP branch. National office has taken action. I'll tell you exactly what they did when we come right back. You want to support Roller Barge Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to rollermartinunfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. rollermartinunfiltered.com.
folks, that's my homeboy there, uh, Gerald Albright, one of the folks performing at the Life Lux Jazz Experience in Cabo, November 7th through 11th. I'm going to be there as well. Weekend-long event held at the Omnia Day Club in Los Cabos, nestled on the Sea of Cortez in Los Cabos, Mexico. Folks, it's going to be an amazing time over those four days. We're going to have lots of great food and drink and golf and spa, health and wellness, you name it. The second annual Life Lux Jazz Experience. Of course, some great people, entertainers are going to be there. Comedian Mark Curry, Gerald Albright, Alex Bunyan, Raul Madon, Incognito, Pieces of a Dream, Kirk Whalem, Average White Band, Donnie McClurkin, Shalea, Roy Ayers, Tom Brown, Ronnie Laws, and Ernest Quarles. I'll be broadcasting Roller Martin Unfiltered for that Thursday and Friday there as well. And so we want you to be in the house. It's going to be a great time. Uh, go to lifeluxjazz.com, L-I-F-E-L-U-X-E-J-A-Z-Z.com for more information. Packages are going fast. You also want to book it soon so your airline tickets are not crazy high. So go to lifeluxjazz.com. All right, folks, yesterday we told you about uh, Jasmine Childs, a black woman in North Carolina, uh, who alleges that a Reverend Curtis Gatewood, uh, he sexually harassed her uh, in North Carolina. She's an, she was an employee with the North Carolina NAACP. Uh, he, of course, also was someone working there. Uh, they, of course, uh, had an investigation uh, which deemed that her accusations were credible. He, though, is running for president of the NAACP State Conference. Uh, this took place two years ago. Uh, a group of women got together uh, at a news conference yesterday saying that they have not, they want to see action from the NAACP National Office. They've been trying to get this action for the last couple of years, but now they did so. Today, a statement was released uh, where from the NAACP on September 26th, NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson issued a letter to Reverend Curtis Gatewood, member of the NAACP uh, uh, Alamance County, North Carolina branch, notifying Reverend Gatewood Me. that his membership in the NAACP is immediately suspended pending a hearing into allegations that he sexually harassed a former NAACP North Carolina chapter employee. Uh, and uh, they say in this statement that NAACP takes all allegations of sexual harassment and misconduct seriously. Reverend Gatewood was directed to immediately cease holding himself out as a member of the association because candidates for state conference office must be members in good standing with the organization. He's also ineligible to run for office unless his membership is restored. Given that this matter concerns an internal disciplinary proceeding, the NAACP will have no further comment. They also posted on their website the actual letter that was sent uh, to Reverend Gatewood. And so uh, he, of course, has an opportunity uh, to respond to it. Uh, but, they, but, but based upon their articles, he has to, to, according to this letter sent to him, you are directed to cease and desist immediately from holding yourself out as a member of the NAACP. Uh, and again, it was signed by Derek Johnson, CC, to Leon Russell, chair of the board of directors, uh, of course, chair of the committee of membership and units, as well as the regional director and the general counsel of the NAACP. And so this is the action that Reverend, Doc, Reverend Dr. William Barber wanted to see done as well. He stood with those women at yesterday's news conference, and uh, that is actually the case there. All right, folks, uh, I want to certainly thank Greg, Joseph, uh, as well as Erica for being on our panel today. Uh, I've got to go. They're waiting for me right now uh, here in Lima, Ohio, to speak uh, to this community group and business organization. Folks, do me a favor. Go to my Facebook page, my Twitter account, or Instagram, and read what post I made today when I talk about the cost of our freedom fighters. One of the reasons why we do this show is because, look, we are not trying to ask somebody else to tell our story because they're not going to do it. But here's what we have to understand. If we don't fund this ourselves, it ain't going to happen. And so the bottom line is, it's real simple to say, sure, let's go work for another network, another media outlet, but we have to be willing to fund our own, which means that we must use our collective dollars to do so. I told the story uh, on that post. If you look at Bernie Sanders running for office, more than a million donors. When he ran in 2016, the average donation was $28. I said that if 500,000 donors to a political campaign gave 28 bucks, that candidate would raise $14 million. The bottom line is simple. If we want to tell our own story, we want our own media doing so, guess what? We got to fund it, So, which means that we need you to join our Bring the Funk fan club. What are we asking for? 50 bucks. We're asking you to give 50 bucks to cover the whole year. And that is, of course, $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. And that means for us to be able to control our own narrative. Our goal is real simple. If 20,000 of our followers, more than 1,400 of you are right now watching on YouTube, more than 400 are watching on Facebook, more than 100 on Periscope. 
Do you understand right there? So if you took those numbers alone, uh, that's 1,800 people. I'm just going to show you how we do collective action. If 1,800 of the people who are watching right now gave 50 bucks, that's $90,000 that will be raised to actually support what we do. And so you're not going to get a breakdown of 1619 to 2019 uh, the way we're doing in any other place. And so we need you to support us. Go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Join our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, you can use Cash App. You can use PayPal. You can use Square. If you're watching on YouTube, you can give right there as well. This is about independent black-owned media in the vein of the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier, uh, Ebony, and Jet. When we control our narrative, we control our destiny. All right, folks, I will see you guys tomorrow from Washington, D.C. Got to go. Hop! Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.